When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone and welcome to Economic Research. Uh, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome someone to the channel. Um, you may not have heard of him before. If you haven't, I suggest you do check out his channel. He's probably the world's best expert in lumber, in my opinion. Um, and that is Simon, the uneducated economist. Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me on today. I don't know if I'm the uh, the leading expert on lumber, but uh, yeah, I certainly have a have my uh, have my opinion on it. So. Yeah, for me, um, you've called what's happened in the lumber market absolutely perfectly. Um, so I've Thank seen you. some people pointing to it, saying it's rode up so high um, and no one's really called it. But you've been talking about the curtailments and things like that. And you've been given the supply chain breakdown reasons for the increasing lumber price rather than it being an excess amount of money printing, which is obviously the popular narrative. Um, and I think okay. you called it spot on. Um, so that leads us into what is actually causing the inflation. How do you actually see it? I know you've mentioned this before, but for people who may not have heard before, just uh, let us know what your opinion is on that. Yeah, so inflation's a um, it's an easy topic to kind of just relay for massive money printing, chasing too few goods and services out there. But a, very few people are taking in the supply chain breakdown and being the main reason for the inflation that we're seeing causing the supply and demand issues that we are. I follow lumber. I look at lumber very intensely. I work at a lumber yard. I do retail sales for a living. So what I feel happened inside of the lumber industry, I think is going to be taking place throughout the rest of the economy. And so if we follow what happened in lumber, we saw a huge inventory depletion, supply chain breakdown. We saw prices go through the roof. We saw manufacturing pick up dramatically. We saw the inventory levels rise. We saw a huge drop in price. And then again, we saw the inventory depletions begin to take place again. And this all took place over the course of many years. I mean, it started back in 2018. And right now we're experiencing again where the lumber prices have peaked out and I have a feeling they're gonna be dropping again. So it's like a bullwhip effect of oversupply, undersupply, oversupply, undersupply again. Now, the main economy, the bigger outlook of the economy, it's much slower when, than lumber. Lumber is very you know, quick to re reestablish itself. It's mostly a domestic product that has a well-established supply chain. So when we saw the lumber supplies building back up very quickly, that is because of that well-established supply chain that we had here domestically, which is much different from trying to import stuff from overseas. Yeah, I do see as well some inventory um, data that there is inventory in the broad economy also starting to build now. Um, and I think the Fed is starting to hike in March, and that is going to coincide exactly when the base effects of the consumer price inflation is going to start easing anyway by itself. So I think they've set themselves up to take credit for something that wasn't actually their own doing. But they're going to take I... anyway to keep the facade up. Yeah. And, you know, a little anecdotal evidence for that actually is through the store that I work at. 
Now we have, when we do our inventory rotation, so basically every week, two to twice a week, we get our supply and our, our inventory. And typically when this stock comes in, you'll have your A items. These are the items that you turn over regularly. Like every week you're ordering these things. Before the pandemic, we would get 95 to 98% of these A items in. Right now we're getting 16%. So there's very few of these high turnover items coming through, but that's starting to ease up. We're starting to see more of them come in and they're starting to, and it's funny because like, there was like switching of brands that we saw. So you can tell like there's different imports starting to, to arrive from different locations around the world. At least that's kind of what I'm seeing happening. Okay. And obviously you've got the issues at the ports at the moment still. So do you know whether those backlogs are starting to ease or are they still just as congested as they have been? You know, I, I thought I was reading articles about how it was starting to ease up, but you know, it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like they're just as congested as they ever were. So I don't know. I mean, it, it seems to me like there's still, you know, there's still quite a bit of a backlog and it's probably going to take some take some time to get through it. I honestly think that a lot of it has to do with the regulations that they're putting on these, you know, like on these ports in the state of California with their truckers and, you know, their limitations on what kind of vehicles they can use to transport this stuff around their around the state, you know when you don't let entrepreneurs work at their complete efficiency, then you're not going to have you know, you're not going to have the flow of supply like you should. I mean, ultimately, I mean, I'm not trying to say anything political about it, but if you deregulate a lot of the stuff that restricts transportation of this stuff, I would imagine that entrepreneurs would probably come in pretty quickly and begin to, you know, get the supply moving back through the country. I mean, the easiest way to move stuff is to lower the prices. And I can, you know, I can only assume that as long as these restrictions stay in place, that we're going to continue to have supply chain issues. Yeah, that's my thinking as well, especially um, mandates um, to take a certain medicine about whether you can take that job or not. Um, I'm going to hazard a guess and say if the truck is over in the United States or anything like they are in Great Britain, most of them are just going to tell them to shove their mandate where the sun doesn't shine. And they just simply won't go to work and then it exacerbates the issue. Hence, you get the price inflation. Exactly. You know, you can already see it taking place. There's, you know, I mean, the rumors of the convoys, which I guess isn't a rumor anymore, but, you know, the talk of the convoys up in Canada. I mean, the truckers are already, you know, they're, they're starting to protest and they're, and they're going to, you know, everything you ever eaten, worn, purchased, anything in life, it's, it's been transported by a truck. So it's a critical point of the, of the supply chain. And if you continue to, to push that issue, yeah, you're going to have a breakdown. I mean, ultimately you're going to have to free up the idea of these, free up the idea of the mandates, free up the idea of the regulations, all that other stuff and everything, all this supply would start moving again. The shelves would start becoming filled again. Which looking at the mainstream narrative, I think they are starting to ease back on that now. Just yeah, they are. You can see it. Yeah. I mean, I'm in a very restrictive state. I mean, I'm still in one of these states that, you know, make you do all the mask wearing and stand six feet apart. And they, you know, they're all uptight about it and stuff. So, but, you know, it's coming to an end. The people here are even starting to get tired of wearing the mask and doing the stuff. Yeah. So how do you see if the Fed does decide to follow through and raise interest rates? How far do you see them getting and what effect do you think it would actually have on the wider economy in terms of people's housing, the loans and keeping up with their debt payments? Yeah, um, it would probably it would 
I mean, as far as going to housing, it's going to start raising the interest rates on those mortgages, which is going to make it difficult on the borrower. However, with the lack of inventory out there of homes, I just it it seems to me that rising interest rates might actually get a lot of people to try and buy a home before the interest rates, if they really are convinced that the interest rates are going to go up, that might get them to go out and try and buy homes before that before that takes place. You know, in an already depleted inventory, I can't imagine like housing going down from that. I mean, just that kind of scenario right there. But it is a rising interest rates. And generally, when interest rates rise, that puts pressure on assets like, you know, houses and cars and stuff like that. So, you know, if the interest rates do go up, we're going to start seeing issues with the broader economy and things are going to start slowing down from that. And the Federal Reserve is probably not in a very good position for raising interest rates all that dramatically. Like if they took them up to, you know, two and a half percent, I think the pain that would be felt throughout the economy would just be so dramatic. And, you know, for those who don't like, I don't know how well your listeners are into the Fed, like when they talk about interest rates, a lot of people don't even know what it is that the Federal Reserve is talking about when they talk about interest rate risings, because really they're talking about a Fed funds rate. And it's not even a real rate. It's an imaginary rate. It's like, you know, as if they drew it on the wall and say, this is what we're shooting for boys. You know, so it's, it's, it's a rate that they have the interbank lending, you know, for, you know, for these big, big banks and whatever takes place on that Fed funds rate generally starts going throughout the rest of the economy. So if they threaten that, that Fed funds rate, if they say, Hey, we're going to start raising this up, then people start behaving in a different fashion. So it's very much a credible threat that has taken place right now. And if you think it's all the way to March, you know, and if we get into March and we realize that, you know, the economy is not doing as well, or, you know, things are starting to turn, they could turn their like their idea of doing three rate hikes down to one, and then the whole market would begin to change its perception again. So it's it's very much a credible threat game. It's all their jawboning. It's trying to condition markets markets to behave in a certain fashion. And you know, just by simply saying that they were going to be raising rates already, you're starting to see like like I said, these mortgage rates rise. So it's almost like, hey, you better go out there and do your spending. You better get out there and get it. So they're like almost pushing that stimulus effect. And that's uh, another thing that I think you mentioned better than anyone else that I've seen when you talk about how they raised the real rate of interest when it hit the zero lower bound. They create yeah. fear around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and that's one like it's not a lot of people talk about it. You know, I mean, it was in this federal reserve speech. It was a John Williams speech from, uh, in fact, I got it right here. What was the title? Of that? I was talking about it yesterday or the day before monetary policy strategies for a low neutral interest rate world. And it was given on November 30th, 2018. And in this speech, he's totally describes the scenario that we're living through right now. I mean, he talked about you know, how they were going to go through average inflation rate where they were going to let the interest rates run and, you know, extra high for extra long for an extended period of time to make up for the fact that they weren't able to achieve their 2% target for the last, you know, 10 years. So going for a 2% average is much different from a 2% target. And everybody looks at this 7% inflation rate and they're like, look, the Fed has lost control. They're way over their target, but their target isn't a target anymore. Their target is average inflation over 10 years. So whatever the hell, or not even 10 years, I don't even know if it's 10 years. I just assume it's 10 years. I don't know exactly how they make this formula. And I don't know if anybody really does as far as what the average inflation rate is. It's almost down to the point that it's arbitrary now, like whatever 
whatever it is that, you know, they're like, we did our calculations. Okay, we're at average 2% inflation now. Let's do something about it. And so it's very hard to predict what it is that the Federal Reserve is going to do. Before they had an actual target, they would be like, if they're over 2%, they adjust their monetary policy to bring that inflation back down to 2%. If it was under, then again, they would start easing to try and bring it back up. Yeah, this is this is kind of the condition that we're in now. So like, I think probably what what made like the most the most interesting thing that I think I found inside of that speech is when they tried to raise the real interest rates, like you were saying, when the Federal Reserve goes and raises those interest rates, they start putting pressure on the economy, right? So people don't want to buy the houses and cars and go on vacation. And when that takes place, it, they get to a point where they just can't go any further. So now the real interest rates, this is where like a lot of people start getting confused about like, because you got inflation, inflation expectation, the Fed funds rate, interest rates, real interest rates, what is all this stuff, right? So now if you kind of imagine an investor who earns 2% off an investment, if the inflation expectation is 1%, the investor's real interest rate is 1%. If you lower the inflation expectation down 1%, the investor's real return, the real interest rate is 2%. So if you can lower the inflation expectation, you can raise the real interest rates. And this is where I found something very interesting when I when I read the speech and listened and thought about what was taking place back during when the speech was given, because these guys were running out of the ability to raise interest rates any further. They were like, you know, screwing up the economy. And they were like, this is it. This is as far as we can go. And they only like at two, two and a half percent, whatever it was. I can't remember exactly how high they got gotten into. But that's when the administration comes out and starts screaming about there's no inflation and how the Federal Reserve should be ending their quantitative tightening, which was that interest rate rising that they were doing. They should end that quantitative tightening, move into quantitative easing. There's no inflation. They should have zero interest rates. They should be printing money. And I mean, Trump was just screaming this at the top of his lungs. He wanted to fire Jerome Powell for it. Well, if you think about it, he was lowering the inflation expectation. The Fed couldn't go any higher. That was was it. They hit two and a half percent. The economy was screwing up. They couldn't get the real interest rates any higher or couldn't get interest rates any higher. But Trump lowered the inflation expectation by screaming at them that they should be going into quantitative easing. And he was able to raise the real interest rates even further. And this was all prior to 2019 and everything starting to you know move into a slowdown in the economy. And that's when they fired up the quantitative easing and started lowering interest rates and all that other stuff after the pandemic. Yep. And I find it quite uh, interesting that that report was written in 2018 um, because the narrative at the time from 2016 to 2018 was global synchronized growth. They can raise interest rates in that environment. Everything's going to be awesome. But then it gets to 2018 and they completely flatten the yield curve. So the long end just completely rejects it and it's a sign. I don't think the Fed are as stupid as some people think they are i think they see these signs just as well as everybody else does and they can think right okay we can't really go any further so we're going to have to think of something else and i think mm-hmm. that's what they did um and then obviously you get to september 2019 markets just go crazy with the uh, repo market interest rate spikes the inversion of that yield curve and then a couple of months later well we all know what happened so i think that report is them knowing they can't raise nominal interest rates that high at all, maybe one, maybe 1.5%, because every single time we have a recession, it gets lower and lower and lower every single time. Um, and they're at zero now, so where can they go? It, it, it's a move out of desperation, in my opinion. 
yeah, it is. It is. It very much is. Um, you know, the next downturn is is going to be really interesting. Now, this is this is where like we just don't know what the Fed will do. Like we didn't. I mean, at least I didn't. Maybe somebody else out there. But like when the pandemic kicked in and the Fed kicked in those special purpose vehicles, like I, I those came out of nowhere. Like I was not anticipating that at all, even though they had used some of them in the past. But then I saw these special purpose vehicles get put out there and I'm like, oh, man, this is how they're going to backstop every corner of the market. I get it. But then I started watching these special purpose vehicles and realized those were just credible threats in themselves. Like some of them were useful, like they actually used the, the special purpose vehicles. But like the corporate debt lending facility that they set up, that was a credible threat. That wasn't that wasn't intended on ever buying any kind of corporate debt. The Federal Reserve, I mean, they could have, they would have, they had the ability to do it, but they had no intentions on it. They just really wanted to put the threat out there of buying corporate debts to get everybody else to front run them. And it worked. It worked great. Yeah. Expectations policy once again at its finest. Yeah. I don't know. Have you ever talked about that with your viewers about what the special purpose vehicles are and stuff? Um, I think I've lightly touched on it. Uh, what I've been focusing yeah. mostly uh, is the euro dollar market, the actual wider monetary system, what's happening globally. Um, mm. So I, I tend to view, obviously, the United States dollar as the reserve currency, but I try and view it as two separate currencies almost. So you've got the one that exists inside the United States that obviously all the citizens use, and that's kind of separate to what goes on outside. Um, so what goes on outside, it looks like there is a dollar shortage that hasn't been solved since going back to all the way to the global financial crisis. And uh, I, I did a video, I think it was a week or two ago, I calculated how far off trend the United States is in terms of GDP. Um, so I calculated the last, I think it was from 1980, the 25 years or so running up to the start of the global financial crisis, the average growth was 6.08%. Um, and I think it was 3% since then in nominal GDP. So I think now you're $9.7 trillion behind trend. If you stayed on that current growth trajectory. My gosh. Yeah. <laughs> It's definitely slowing down, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, uh, I think they've been desperate ever since then. And that's when you see all of these crazy policies come out, not just in the US, but globally. So obviously it's a yeah. global monetary system um, and it's just broken down. Like it's like the wheels have stopped and they're trying to push a car up a hill. But it's just not yeah. happening. Yeah. And this is where like, you know, this is where I really think like as things begin to get to a point where it starts to deteriorate again, I honestly feel that this is where the central bank digital currencies will be kicked in. Like they will try and get cash out of the system, try and take interest rates in the negative territory, you know, try and implement policies like they have never ever used before. And again, this is like some of the stuff that we just don't know. They, the federal reserve has a toolbox of stuff that they don't, as far as I can find, or I can't find, you know, like, I don't know what it is that they have in secret strategies and if we go off of what they have available to them right now or what they've used it doesn't seem like they can continue on but we just we just don't know what it is that they can do or what that is that they are willing to do or are having you know planning to do um you know i find that there is no better way to change policy or to change laws or to get people to accept 
you know, a new system than to do it in the middle of a crisis. So if you can put people in fear of losing their retirements and going hungry and losing their houses, and you can put everybody in this fear, they're pretty much willing to accept anything. And so that's where I think like, you know, it'll make it a lot easier to implement a central bank digital currency. Unlike China, China's doing it really slowly. Like they, you know, they kind of like drive a wedge and just tap it real slowly until they get it in there. The United States isn't so, I don't think they're going to do it in such fashion. I think it's probably going to be more like, you know, if you want your stimulus, you got to, you got to download this digital wallet. Yeah, I think there's um, another element to the central bank digital currencies. And I think that's to do with the repo market. To my understanding, what happened in the 2008 crash, it was people owned, obviously, the collateral, didn't pay it back. But then because that was rehypothecated so many times, it was really Mm -hmm. difficult to work out who owned what. And that was part of the reason why everything broke down, that interbank trust broke down, and then the whole system just locked up. So my thinking is maybe with some kind of blockchain technology in the currency, you can clearly see who owns that collateral. So it eliminates that part of the risk in the repo market. So I think that may be an element of the central bank digital currency to try and bring back a bit of bank trust so we can start growing again. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's certainly something it would do. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's one of the things that I kind of, I mean, I don't want to say like I'm excited about a central bank digital currency because, you know, I think of all the, you know, the nasty things that can come down with it as far as like controlling people and whatever. But the transparency, like you say, and then also like the idea of using smart contracts, like, you know, the once you have like smart contracts in play, these are things that are going to take take place, you know, regardless. And I feel that if they were functioning well enough, you could almost just make governments and authority almost irrelevant. And I kind of like that idea. <laughs> yeah, I, unfortunately, I don't see them letting go of control quite that easily. It would be nice, I admit. Well, I don't think they'll set it up to do it, but I, I, it's not, I think it's something that could happen, like maybe outside of their control, like, you know, whether not necessarily through a central bank digital currency kind of kind of process. You know. Yeah, and how do you see gold fitting into things? Because I see that uh, there's quite a few people that think that gold is going to have a role again in the monetary system. I'm looking at the accumulation of central banks globally. I'm looking at it having a zero percent risk weighting under the new Basel Three Accords uh, physical gold. So maybe that could be used as some kind of collateral, maybe like some kind of repricing system. Um, that coincides with the central bank digital currency and also the smart contracts to use in kind of repo markets. Yeah. You know, I, I would love to see gold come back as a monetary metal, but I, I mean, I don't know. I've been a wishful thinker of stuff like that for a long time. I don't know if gold will ever make it back to that monetary metal ever again. Even though I do see like, you know, with the Basel three and being used as, you know, as that, as that sort of class of, of being, you know, of being a monetary metal. I, I honestly think that it's probably going to end up being more about the people using it as their own personal savings. Then it, and that's going to be the important part of gold, having it in your physical possession. 
I just don't see where like governments are going to start, you know, accumulating gold. I mean, they obviously accumulate it for, for protection reasons for themselves, but I just don't think that they're going to do it in such a way that they're going to turn it back into a monetary metal again. Um, you know, I mean, it, I hate to say it, but like, you know, when Ben Bernanke, I think he almost said it best, you know, it was just like they hold it best out of tradition, you know, because they don't seem to really ever use it for anything really useful. No. Um, well, I'm looking at uh, what's going on with Russia and China, because it's obviously quite geopolitical. We try and avoid that as best we can, but sometimes it's impossible to not get sucked in by it. Um, they're also trying to start their own monetary system, apparently. Uh, some of the news articles that I've read over the last month or so, um, and both of those two are quite big gold buyers. They hold each other's currencies, and they're trying to cut down their dollar dependency uh, as much as they possibly can. Yeah. And and eventually it'll happen. I mean, you know, they can try. I mean, and, you know, they might be somewhat successful in a lot of fashions. I know that, you know, if you if you continue to push in that direction, you can eventually make it make it go that way. But, you know, you got to think this is like, you know, the United States world reserve currency. And that is a hell of a system to try and compete against. I mean, it's not there's nothing that even remotely comes close to it. So if they build that system up and, you know, and they spend some years doing it and it becomes more reliable and efficient and can do it, then, yeah, it might take it take over. But it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, you know, I mean, if you if you think that you're going to be able to live and survive through, you know, that kind of time period of it, then, yeah, holding on to gold might be a good idea, because I imagine that if they go to destroy one system and set up another, that's going to be the transition that you're going to have to go through is through this monetary metal. You know, otherwise, you know, you have to put your tra- trust and faith into, you know, Russia and China. And I <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many people in the world are going to do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't see it replacing the system. I see there being um, a lot of systems kind of evolving with it. So the United States won't lose reserve currency status. I think it will be joined as reserve currency status by a lot of other different currencies. And we'll just kind of exchange each other's currencies rather than solely trading in United States dollars for oil and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see. I mean, I can see competition for for different currencies coming into play, Um, you know, especially if they if, you know, if they become more accepted. That's really what it, it comes down to is that, you know, you have to have like countries need to have confidence in that in that currency that they're trading with that they're going to be able to use it to make the purchase from another from another place and so the u.s dollar has that there's really nothing else that competes with that and so yeah i mean i can believe that it could take place it's just that you just don't just because they have it started doesn't mean that it's going to work to completion you know um but I certainly do see that there's going to be some sort of competing currencies. It's already heading that way. And the dollar is not going to make it as a world reserve currency forever. I mean, that it's that's not going to happen. So at some point it will be replaced with what? Who knows? But yeah, I mean, just the fact that they're even setting up the systems kind of shows that it's going in that direction. Yeah, that's my thinking. I think it'll be a case of natural trading partners will hold each other's currencies because obviously there's a use for them. Um, but I think the, the elephant in the room is the huge amount of debt there is around the world. So I don't think we can transition or go back to having sustainable growth without dealing with that debt problem. Um, uh, it doesn't seem like anyone's really talking about getting rid of all that debt. 
um, or they've not got anything that they can really sort of succeed with, you know what I mean? Um, to get rid of that debt so we can get back to growing because obviously it's it's a drag on economic activity. Yeah, you know, and it's it, it's hard for like a lot of times, like I know when I talk to people about the debt and, and stuff, it gets, it's hard for them to try and like, you know, visualize what it is that's taken place. And that's when I like to use that beers and saws analogy. I don't know if you remember, if you've heard me talk about that one, but that's where like, you know, if you can imagine everything in the economy, either being a beer or a saw, and if you took out a bunch of debt and you bought beer, you can really stimulate the economy. You know, there's a lot of agriculture and advertising and transportation and work and all kinds of stuff that goes into beer. But once you drink that beer, it's gone. There's nothing left of it. And now if you have consumed a bunch of beer, you have to postpone your current spending to pay for that past consumption. And that's the debt burden that, that we are facing right now is because we drank all this beer. Now, had that money gone into saws, you wouldn't have been as stimulative to the economy at first, but at times goes by, you would eventually have worked those saws, cutting up lumber, putting it together, whatever it is that you're doing, you know, the manufacturing part of things. And this would eventually get to the point where you could have paid off all your debts and start growing again. So the fact that we have to like pay for all that beer is hard because you have to basically stop consuming everything that you've ever done and pay for all this you know past consumption you've done yeah but it's, it's trying to work with a massive hangover really isn't it that's what yeah it's, like, it's trying to work with a massive hangover it's exactly and then not take anything for it and then say i'm not going to get drunk anymore <laughs> and then the next recession comes the bottle straight away again every single time Right, they can get through the day, but at the by the end of the day, they're going to want to get hammered again. And so yeah, and that's exactly what we do every single time. Every time, yeah. Um, so yeah, be, I don't know how we'd get out of that. Do you think central bank digital currencies is a way of doing that, or do you think a debt jubilee is going to be quite likely? Um, I don't, I, I don't understand how the jet jubilee doesn't destroy the retirement funds like how do you take care of all these retirement funds by giving like because they're all based on this debt like somebody's promised to pay so if you just like just wipe away all the debts then how do you how do you pay all the retirees do they just get do they just lose out i think that's where ubi comes in i think that's right talk about ubi yeah so that's that's where you would have to have something else come in because you know obviously you can't you know destroy the the retirees the the fixed income people who are who are relying on that debt being paid so if you go into UBI then that would that would almost have to be a necessity if you do a jet jubilee yeah i'm not sure if you've seen but uh, i read something i think it was yesterday here in the united kingdom so we've not really had the conversation about UBI before but we're starting to see things start to creep in here too. It's like, um, I think, what was it? They're going to pay every adult who earns less than £123 a week that money of £123 per week instead of all of the other benefits that you get, like disability living allowance and things, which I think is like £65 a week. Um, But that's what they're trying to push. Um, I think they're voting on it in April, I think, is the article said not too sure on that. I have to double check the article, but we are starting to see it creep over here. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Eurozone start doing something along the similar lines. So, because they all work together, didn't they? All these central banks, all the central planners. Um, well, I think that's. And the- are they talking? Are they talking like broad, like everybody, not like just certain incomes, but like every single person in the country? Yes, yeah, so everyone who earns less than a certain okay. amount will get that money. 
Right. See, now that's not universal basic income. No. Universal basic income is every single person getting it. See, this is where I think there's a, I think they're going to like trick people into believing that they're getting a, like this UBI system coming in, but that's not like, see, this is the reason why you can't, I, I mean, every single UBI study that I have ever found, they're like, look, we took this neighborhood, we gave all these people UBI and look how awesome they're doing compared to the neighborhood next to them. And it was just like, well, yeah, if you give a certain group of people a bunch of money, that's going to make it look really good. But if you give every single person in the country that money, all of a sudden it's not going to seem so, so useful anymore. Now that's more of like wealth distribution than it is like actual universal basic income because you know ultimately it, it the idea of universal basic income is to take care of everybody's like cost of living like the the essential things that you need to actually survive then you need to give that to every single person in the entire country and then they can work off of their own merits but if you just give a certain group of, of that money then that's welfare that's like you know distribution of wealth that's not that's not like the same thing in my opinion anyway it's going to be conditioning because then you can start voting on how much, you know, you get and how, what kind of level of, you know, income that you need to get to in order to get it. Universal basic income wouldn't be that way. It would be just one, one payment to everybody, the yeah. exact same. Yeah. Um, which do you think that's what the stimulus checks that you guys received in the United States? Do you think that's what it was kind of setting up for? Do you think it was like a trial run for it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, yes, I think that's what it was, was a trial run to see how well it went through. Um, you know, they needed that stimulus out there just to make sure that, you know, they could keep the economy rolling again. And I heard of plenty of people who took that money and dumped it right into the stock market. So, I mean, it, I, 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 if this is the case, I mean, this is where, like, if you actually gave a universal basic income without separating it by the classes, then you would probably end up with a bigger separation of classes. Like, the rich would get richer. Yeah. yeah. The poor people will spend it, the rich will buy financial assets that go up. Yeah. Right. I mean, because, you know, it's, I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, especially being as broke as I have been in the past, but being broke is really a mindset that you keep yourself there. Now, I know a lot of people are going to get upset with that statement, but it's really true. Like when I was at my worst, I would rather get a beer than to try and deal with my problems. And I know that's the fact for a lot of people. And it's in its maybe it's mental condition, you know, or, or whatever it is. It's just the case. And you can say it's their fault or their problem, whatever. But if you give, I'm just saying, if you give people who are not prepared for it or don't know how to deal with it, that money, they will blow it. They will buy drugs and alcohol and video games and good times, but they won't invest it and be smart with that money. It comes down to beers and souls again, doesn't it? It comes down to beers and souls again. Yeah, exactly. And so the people who are smart, who are like working hard and investing their money and doing things, all of a sudden get this check in for UBI, they're going to be like, oh man. You know, and it's just going to widen that gap of inequality even more. Yeah, and that's something that um, a rising boat does kind of lift. Well, a rising tide lifts all boats, doesn't it? Because um, I'm not sure how it was in the United States, but I've noticed that that gap really, really has started to accelerate wider since the GFC. 
So since everything started slowing down, the rich are getting a lot richer, but the poor are getting a lot, lot poorer. Um, whereas before, it seemed to be a lot more balanced. I'm not sure how it was over there. Um, well, you know, to be honest, I I didn't realize, like, how bad the inequality was. Like, I always, like, you know, being broke my whole life, I just kind of looked at people who had a lot of money. I was lucky, you know, and it's just like some people get, you know, lucky and other people don't. And then as I got myself out of debt and, you know, started, you know, getting a savings and started trying to do some investing and stuff like that, you know, I realized that, wow, there is a major separation between those who have and have not. And I just thought it was just me not being able to make it on my own, but it's really, it's that difficult to make it right now. And I think Portland, like, cause I'm from Portland, Oregon. I'm not I mean, I'm outside of Portland, I'm out on the coast, but Portland is the closest city to me. And when I was a kid, Portland was a beautiful place. Like it was a beautiful place to go to. It was a wonderful city. It was clean. It was nice. Everything there was awesome. And now you go to Portland and it's just full of homelessness and graffiti and tents and garbage and drugs and just nastiness. And it's really sad. I was just like, man, what happened to this beautiful city that I remember when I was a kid? And now it's just this, you know, this crap hole. And I got to thinking about the Cantillon effect, right? And so, you know, Cantillon effect, he was, you know, I'm sure you probably, you know, know about it, but this was the idea that when money comes into the system, this new money that comes in, the people who have, have access to that money get to spend it at face value by the time it gets through the system. And the people at the end of the line of that money, when they get a hold of it, they have to deal with the higher prices from all the new money coming in but their wages haven't gone up. And so this is actually driving out the inhabitants because they're going to go seek another place to live or you know, go seek where they can have that standard of living again. And so this new money that comes in, it actually creates an inequality within the system as the people who have access to this money, they don't really want to spend that money on higher cost products. So what they do is they end up getting foreign trade coming in. So they end up going more and more with foreign imports, which drives out even more of the local manufacturing and more of the inhabitants as the prices of everything continue to go up. Well, that's what I feel has taken place in Portland as people who have sold their expensive places and down like in say LA, sold a house for a million and a half, come up to Portland, buy a $500,000 home and now have a million dollars to spend in Portland. They want some of the nicer things that they had from before. They start bringing those things into the city. All of a sudden, the things that are now used to be like readily accessible to all the working class there have become so expensive that they can't work there anymore. Even a normal job doesn't get you an apartment and you have to live in your car or even worse, a tent or something like that. So this is where I feel is really driving the inequality between the two and driving people into homelessness or either into luxury or homelessness. This is the one, you know, the two places that you can go. So as this continues, this new money pouring into the system is just making the problem even worse. And, you know, I don't know what it is that they're supposed to do about it other than, you know, like everybody start feeling a bunch of pain and start dealing with, you know, paying for the beer, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I've basically lived through a bit of the uh, Cantillon effect myself. So I'm originally from the southeastern area of England, um, so near London, quite expensive. Um, So I've moved up to the northwest and this house that I'm living in at the moment is probably about three times cheaper than a similar size house if I stayed down there. And I think right. prices just went up astronomical around uh, the London area. 
Um, here in Manchester, it's not too bad, but I'm starting to see things going crazy as well. Um, so I think what our house in the last two years is up 30% in value. So I think you're starting wow. to people get priced out up here as well. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. You know, and I mean, it pretty much happened to me. Like if I, I mean, I, I, I tell you, man, I thank God every day that I have this YouTube channel because if I didn't have it, I really, I don't know where my life would be right now. I mean, it has really changed everything about what I have going on. But last July I was renting a house. My landlord came to me and says, man, you got to go. I'm going to sell this place. And he wasn't mean about it or anything like that. I mean, he was really cool, but he gave me 90 days and I thought, yeah, no problem. Could not find a place to rent at all. There was no place in Astoria to, to rent. And I ended up having to buy and buying took everything out of me. It took every last bit I had. And so I thought about it. It was just like, man, if I didn't have what I have going on, I don't know how it was that anybody would, would be able to make it. Like I would have had to leave this area, the place that I grew up in. Like this is where my family and friends and network, everything is here. But I almost had to leave because, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't room for me. <laughs> yeah. But I remember watching the videos around then, like, man, you look stressed around that time moving in. It, it was so tough, man. It was so, because it, it did, like, you know, I, I had a foreclosure in my past. So trying to deal with the foreclosure made the available loans for me, like, almost non-existent. Like, there was hardly anything out there. And so the mortgage lender that I was working with was a good friend. And thank God I had a good friend too, because doing it, because most people would have been like, you know what? There's easier fish to fry. You're on your own, dude. And he kept working for me and he found a loan out there and he was like, man, we have got to get this one for you. But what happened with this foreclosure? How come, you know, you, you know, what, what happened with the payments and stuff? And I'm like, man, you know, loss of income, wife got pregnant. And he was like, okay, well, write up a letter, prove that you had the loss of income. Let's get the extenuating ex circumstance. And then now you got to come up with about twice as much of a down payment of what you had originally. And I'm like, dude, I don't have that much money. So scrounged everything. Like, I mean, I literally like going through like the couch cushions, trying to come up with every dime I had by the fine, by the time I came up with all this money, like through the, I checked my PayPal accounts and everything else. I piled it all up and I was able to write a cashier's check for the down payment. I had like literally $300 left in my savings account. And that was in October. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah it was a stressful moment, man. You know, I'm feeling a little bit better about it. But, <laughs> but the, the important thing is you got there in the end. You got there. In the end. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, on the subjects of um, starting a YouTube channel, I think it was actually one of your videos that I watched um, just before I started this that actually gave me the inspiration to start it. Well, good. It was my video that's inspired you? Yeah, it was yours. And I think it was one of Jake DC's as well. Um, so I think I watched two back to back and both of them said you should start a YouTube channel. I thought, you know what? I watch economics YouTube channels a lot. So why don't I just go and start my own? And I thought, you know what? Let's do it. Awesome. Awesome. You know, I think everybody should have a YouTube channel. Like I, you know, we, we like economics, so we do ours on economics, but I think anybody who has anything that they're somewhat passionate about, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, if it's sports or music or fishing or whatever, just, you know, fire up your camera and start talking about it, start making these videos, start figuring out where it is that your niche can be. 
I mean, YouTube is a wonderful place. And if you, if you commit yourself to it, it's amazing what can happen from it. Cause I tell you, November prior to November of 2017 of starting this video, I never thought that I would ever share a stage with Ron Paul or Robert Kiyosaki or Lynn Alden or Jason Hartman or any of these people that I followed and just had this huge respect for. But yet here I am, you know, and I am literally the average dude. Like, you know, I mean, I am not anything special. Like I didn't study anything to to get here i am just really just doing the research coming out here on the on the videos putting it out there for you guys to watch i listen to my audience just you know when they said do this don't do that we don't appreciate this but we do appreciate that i listened to them what they wanted and really it just took a little bit of of trying and i didn't really do anything like i didn't do anything different like i make the videos the same way i did three years ago like there's not I just do what I do, you know? Yeah, I think you started yours kind of in a similar way to mine because, honestly, I bore my girlfriend to death sometimes. So I talk about economics quite a lot. She's like, you need a YouTube channel or something. Um, so I remember listening to, I think it was actually in your speech, at, um, Rob Cactus event, how you started your YouTube channel, I think. Or it might have been one of your videos. Um, how you did exactly the same thing. I just bored mm-hmm. everyone to death with economics and then just sat in your car and recorded your first video. I did, yeah. It was it was Miss Brittany, um, a girl I work with, and I was. I was like babbling on about, I don't know, Fed policy or something. And she like I'm just chewing her ear off and she's not even paying attention. Like I'm just going, you know, I'm just babbling away. And she just turns to me and she's like, dude, listen, you know, <laughs> you need to start a channel or a blog or something because nobody understands anything you're talking about and you're driving us crazy. So yeah, after that, I'm like, okay, you're right. I went down there like five minutes later, I'm got my camera up and I'm making this introduction video. And so I really, I should go and thank Brittany. I don't know if she knows that I put her in my speech. <laughs> yeah. I should go and tell her. <laughs> to be fair, it was a good speech. I could see why people said it was uh, the most relatable one because like it really did hit home with me when I listened to it. Um, thank you. I didn't realize that 45 minutes went past when I put my headphones in to listen to it. I thought I was only listening to it for a minute, but no, gone. Yeah, um, that's what a lot of people had told me, that it was like, it was something that carried them right through the entire time. And it was, yeah, 40, yeah, because it was, it was like 45 minutes or something like that. And, man, that was amazing. I, you know, I blacked out up on stage. I can't remember being up there. Yeah, I would love it. If Rebel Capital could come to the UK, because I'd love to go to one. Oh, man. Yeah, that would be so awesome. It probably could do it, you know, because there's got a lot of people do respect George Gowan and learn so much from his whiteboard videos. Um, so he could probably go anywhere in the world and have a massive audience, to be fair, uh, as well as a whole host of speakers such as yourself. Like, you've got a following globally now. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, it, it was so funny because... Uh, after I came back from the rebel capitalist, the local paper had picked up the story and, and ran a piece on me. And uh, all these people are now coming in. They're like, man, I didn't know you had a YouTube channel. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like here, 84,000 subscribers in a city of 10,000 people. And nobody knew I had a YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, they're like, I just thought you worked down here at the lumberyard, man. I didn't know you studied economics. <laughs> Yeah. So you've been talking about lumber for what last four or five years now? Yeah, pretty much. It, well, I found um, 
you know, when I started talking on my channel, I was just talking whatever I could think of, but being in the lumber industry, working, you know, retail, retail building supplies, I just started talking about building supplies and kind of relating them to the housing market. And that's really what got me a lot of attention in the early days, especially when the housing market started, you know, teetering, you know, we were going into 2018, there was a lot of questionable things happening with lumber prices. And, you know, all of a sudden lumber price futures were dumping out and mills were shutting down. I was talking about all this stuff long before anybody on YouTube was, was talking. I mean, well, there was a few people talking lumber, but you know, it wasn't until like the lumber prices started jumping up over to a thousand per thousand that everybody started talking about lumber on YouTube. But I was talking about it every week for years leading up to leading up to the high prices. So people were really, you know, they were really curious on, on what was happening. And since here I was talking about it every week and talking about mill closures and inventory depletions and OSB manufacturers going out of business and all this other stuff. And then we have this huge run up. Yeah. It gave me a lot of credibility. So people wanted to know what my opinion was on lumber. And, you know, I, I had a lot of people argue with me about like, you know, this is federal reserve action and stuff like that. And I'm like, you guys believe what you want. I've been watching the inventory levels here. and I know why the prices ran up as high as they did. I'm sure the fed didn't help it any, but it was a lot more to do with, you know, with the change of the way things were being conducted, especially out of the British Columbia area. It's a very long story, but you know, we saw it coming and it's all over my YouTube channel. I mean, you can, like I said, you can find a witty, a video of it for, from every week leading back to 2017. Yeah. So I think it was, um, I think you went on one of George's uh, shows and that was when I first got introduced to your YouTube channel. Um, and yeah, you were talking about lumber and I was just watched the price go up and you, like you say, you were speaking about it for months before. That's when I found anyway, months before, and you called it absolutely spawn. Hence why I introduced you as the uh, world's leading expert in the lumber industry. <laughs> yeah, that was a really good timing because I actually held back on talking about that particular thing on George Gammon's show because I was talking about the shortage of pressure treated four by fours. And, uh, you know, being a critical component to like any outdoor project, if you want to build a deck or a fence or anything that's outdoors, you start with a four by four pressure treated post. And, you know, here it is. I'm out of four by fours. Like I cannot get them. And it's early in the summer. It's like March, you know. And so George and I did that show together. I mentioned those four by four pressure treated. And it was just crazy because it was like two weeks later, three weeks later, it's just all these news articles coming out talking about that and you know but i was just like you know it was basically i broke it on on george's show that that day and yeah i mean pretty much that that gave me a lot more credibility after that because people were like man he called it first you know yeah but i, I you know it was just because my vendor ran out like my vendor could have said if he had a youtube channel he would have been first you know <laughs> so i just i just happened to be in line before the customers get to it you know Hence, uh, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the importance of having a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was you that's got what, another one you're on now, 86,000 YouTube subscribers instead of your vendor? Um, yeah, yeah it's, I think it's 84, but yeah, it's, it's up there. Um, it's incredible. Like, I remember when I got my first 100 subscribers, and I remember going to my wife, and I was just like, see, I told you, there's 100 people out there who totally like listening to me. See, I don't need you. I got I got 100 people. You know, <laughs> you don't need to chew your off no more. 
And, uh, you know, and it just kept growing. And I was just like, man, this is, this is cool. You know, like I got 12 people who watch my videos. I got a hundred subscribers. This is neat. You know, (laughs) I'm going to stick it out. And it just kept going. And just like, I, I don't even understand how, like, or why it just, it just kept, just kept getting bigger and bigger and you know people just kept telling me to keep doing what you're doing don't give up you know and i'm like all right so yeah. quality I, content I'm put another video out you know but uh yeah, that's, that's, hopefully we can uh follow suit hopefully but i think we've got to yeah. work on the, the quality of our content i think that we're going to try and uh improve a little bit because when i first started man the first videos i did sucked i watched <laughs> them back and even i was falling asleep listening to it <laughs> yeah. well that's one thing that i did in the early days is i made the shortest videos with the most amount of information i could possibly cram into it i didn't like i wasn't trying to go for any kind of length of time on these videos i was really trying to go for like a two-minute video because i knew that trying to come from like the uneducated economist perspective for people that I was not going to have a whole lot of time with them, that I would have a very short, like attention span with these people. And so if I crammed them with some really good stuff really fast, then I could, you know, hopefully intrigue them to watch another video. And so that's what I did in the early days is I nailed them with some very short and sweet videos. And then as time went on, I started to lengthen my videos out. And then the ad revenue kind of almost requires you to at least put out an eight minute video. So you know, not to get paid, but to get, you know, the full amount of ad revenue you can. So really that's how I kind of got my videos. Like I, I would, I would keep my videos between, you know, five to 10 minutes if I could. Um, because I feel that's probably where you have the most attention from your viewers. After that, you, they start fading away. Cause that's what I would do. Like, I remember like watching or listening to, to videos and I was like, man, I got the first 10 minutes of this, but after that, I kind of stopped listening. You know, I'd be thinking about something they said and I'd be off dreaming in my own imagination, like daydreaming while they're sitting there babbling into the into the interview. And then I realized, oh, shit, I got to go back and listen to this. Here. <laughs> yeah, I do that all the time as well, all the time. Um, so that's where I let's and I thought about that when I started the channel, too. And I'm like, I'm going to hit them with short and sweet videos. You know? Yeah, to be fair, I've not given it much thought. I just go on and just babble. <laughs> mm-hmm. And really, I, I find like that ends up being the most well-liked videos like the ones i try the hardest to prepare for don't don't get nearly the attention that that the ones that i just like kind of fire up the camera and just give them my thoughts you know those ones those ones do so much better yeah yeah anyway uh, we're going for about an hour so this is anything else that's uh you want to go wrap up some conscious i don't want to take up too much of your your friday so it looks like a nice day where you are Dude, it is a beautiful day. It's cold outside, but it is super clear and it's nice. And yeah, it's a really nice day today. I mean, normally it's raining here, you know? <laughs> yeah, living in Manchester, I can relate to that's called the rainy season. <laughs> so yeah, uh, have you got anything else that you want to add or should we uh, should wrap it up there? Um, no, it's been a great conversation, bro. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you joining us because... Um, Getting an insight from, I consider you an expert, like I say, so getting your insights, it's uh, hopefully invaluable to uh, not only me, but also our few viewers that we do have. And um, yeah, hopefully we can do this again sometime in the next couple of months or so. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you.